From WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana, I'm Kate Young, and this is Earth Eats. Detroit often gets presented as this wasteland, as this post-industrial wasteland where nothing exists, and a lot of young folks in the media are taking advantage of this wasteland narrative to present urban farming as this new thing. This week, we're giving a second listen to a conversation with Shane Bernardo, who does community organizing in Detroit around issues of food justice. Our conversation touches on urban farming, intergenerational trauma, and the power of food to connect us with the traditions of those who have come before us. And we have a crisp apple cocktail recipe from Cardinal Spirits to wrap up the show, so stay with us. Renee Reed is back with some food news. Hi, Renee. Hi, Kate. Singapore's health ministry has announced it will roll out a total ban on ads for high-sugar drinks, including soda, juices, yogurt drinks, and sweetened instant coffee. Sugary drinks will also need to be labeled and color-coded with sugar content information emblazoned on the front of bottles and packaging. Singaporeans are among the biggest consumers of sugar per capita in Asia. The city-state also faces a rapidly aging population and higher associated health costs. A study published in the journal Global Health in April this year found that Singaporeans consumed an average of more than 76 liters per person per year in 2015. The study also showed that those drinks were more affordable in Singapore than in other Southeast Asian countries at the time. The city-state also faces a rapidly aging population and higher associated health costs. A study published in the journal Global Health in April this year found that Singaporeans consumed an average of more than 76 liters per person per year in 2015. The study also showed that those drinks were more affordable in Singapore than in other Southeast Asian countries at the time. The United States topped the global rankings in 2015 at 236 liters consumed per person each year. Singapore's health ministry plans to gather input from consumers and the beverage industry before launching the plan next year. Fire Cider is an apple cider vinegar-based tonic made for centuries through various and indigenous traditions and sold for decades by modern herbalists. Cider ingredients vary, but usually include horseradish, ginger, garlic, onions, cayenne pepper, and honey. After five years, a petition, a boycott, and a civil lawsuit, the verdict is in. The term fire cider doesn't belong to a single company. It belongs to everyone. A case pitting three herbalists known as the Fire Cider Three against Massachusetts-based company Shire City Herbals, who trademarked the term fire cider in 2012, went to trial earlier this year to determine if herbalists could continue to sell products by that name. In a 40-page decision by a judge in the U.S. District Court of Massachusetts, the court declared the defendants met their burden of proof in determining fire cider was a generic term before Shire City sought its trademark in 2012. The Fire Cider 3 announced the verdict in a newsletter released on their website earlier this week, quote, we have been through the ringer and have come out stronger. The group says they are still working with the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office to finish cancellation of Shire City's Fire Cider trademark. The Fire Cider 3 newsletter also states the group's next goal, to create a dictionary of additional generic herbal terms and an herbal commons. 
Thanks to Chad Bouchard and Taylor Killo for those stories. And thanks to you, Renee Reed. No problem, Kate. My name's Shane Bernardo. I'm a long-life Detroiter, and my pronouns are he, him, his. I've really gotten away from using the term activist to describe myself. I, I like to say that I'm a person that does community organizing. I sat down with Shane Bernardo at a Detroit diner called The Click during the Allied Media Conference in June. I first got to know Shane through his work with Why Hunger. He's a skilled facilitator and an insightful guide through difficult conversations around hunger and food justice. Shane is also a grower. He worked with Earthworks Urban Farm in Detroit for many years. I asked about his current practice of growing food. I, I grow food for a friend of mine that has a pop-up restaurant that she has every week. It's called uh, Gorilla Food Cart. It's hosted in Corktown by the old uh, Detroit Tiger Stadium location. And one of her main deals with her food is food is medicine uh, and how food has the power to heal us and bring us together. So that really resonated with me. So I met with her early in the year then to figure out what she, what, she, what kind of ingredients she wanted to feature in her food. And from that point, I've been uh, growing food for her pop-up uh, dinner that happens every week. I know you've been growing food in other contexts, not just this one. So what does it, what does it mean to you to be growing your own food or growing food for other people? I help run a small urban farm uh, here on the east side of Detroit for seven years. And uh, that's a much different context than how I see my connection to food and growing food in my own backyard. The garden that I'm tending to in my own backyard gives me a chance to connect with my food in a much more personal way. The power of food and um, our ability to use it as a medium to create connections between ourselves uh, and the earth, uh, ourselves and um, our traditions that help maintain that connection, and ourselves and uh, our ancestors. For many indigenous peoples around the world, we see the earth as our first mother. So my, my garden is a chance for me to commune with my people and my ancestors. The earth and the water existed long before any of us were here. So the earth and water is our, is our living ancestors, our living ancestors. And so my garden is a place for me to practice a sense of uh, sacredness and reverence with the soil. And I'm, I'm cultivating that connection through gardening and growing food. So I, I see my, my garden as sort of an, of an altar to bring in a sense of spirituality to the work that I'm doing around food and, and use it as a way to ground myself in the work that I'm doing around food and food justice work. I'm glad that you said food justice because it was something I wanted to ask you. It's a term that you know gets thrown around a lot and means different things to different people and I would love to hear you say what it means to you. Food justice and social justice work more broadly is deeply spiritual work. For people that are indigenous to this landmass, they may say that social justice movements started in 1492. And so possibly in that same vein, for me and my ancestors, our social justice and food justice work began in 1521 when Western contact 
first started in the Philippines that eventually displaced and colonized my ancestors in the Philippines. When my people, my family, my ancestors were displaced from our ancestral lands, it also displaced our ability to practice our spiritual traditions and maintain this connection with the earth, which gave birth to our spiritual traditions and customs and rituals. And so my attempt at practicing food justice is a way of, again, bringing in a sense of spirituality, a sense of sacredness, a sense of reverence in reclaiming my connection, my birthright to the earth, to my ancestor, to my people and our traditions. Food justice is just a term that I use sometimes for its convenience, but it goes much deeper than that for me. Another topic that I was interested in so it, especially in Detroit, but in other places too, there is a, a you know kind of urban farming movement. There's a lot of gardens sprouting up in cities, and it's always really seen in this positive light of um, this is this is nothing but a good thing. And I have been interested in some of the unintended consequences of urban gardening and urban farming, especially depending on who's doing it and how they're doing it. There isn't one aspect of colonialism and Western imperialism that hasn't touched our lives and impacted us in some form or fashion. And urban farming is not any different. And so in, in the attempts to respond to your question, not all urban farming here in Detroit is the same. Um, there's some folks that have used urban farming as a way as continued displacement or to appropriate other people's culture. Uh, a lot of times urban farming gets presented as this new thing. The, the image and face that you see associated with urban farming is a young, hip, white person that's recently moved to Detroit because Detroit often gets presented as this blank slate where you can write your name across the sky and uh, subsist upon the land with very little means, which is a very attractive narrative to young, uh, possibly college-educated, artistic-type folks that want a place to create. Not that creating things is necessarily a bad thing, but oftentimes this narrative and young people that attach themselves to this narrative about the city of Detroit perpetuates the, the violence, the generational violence that has been imposed upon communities of color, refugee communities, native communities, immigrant communities, and communities of color, and low-income communities as a way of taking up space and taking up resources. Uh, so oftentimes when you see uh, gardens and farms in the media associated with these young white faces, uh, oftentimes it's the people of color in the background that are doing the work. Like I see this a lot in like youth programming like a lot of times it'll be uh, young white women that have college degrees, may have finished university recently, and come to the city of Detroit because they want to do something good with their lives, which also is not a bad thing, but you, know, you, have, you also have to look at things within this historical and political context as well. And so Detroit often gets presented as this wasteland, as this post-industrial wasteland where nothing exists. And a lot, of, a lot of young folks in the media are taking advantage of this wasteland narrative to present urban farming as this new thing. But if we understand the history of 
of native peoples on this land, in particular the Anishinaabe peoples, the Confederacy, the Three Fires, the Odawa, the Ojibwe, and the Badawadamin. They have been hunting, foraging, fishing, and growing food in this area long, long before any of us were here. So in relative terms, what's, what's new isn't growing food. What's new is the, the city of Detroit. This, these arbitrary boundaries that we use to describe where we're standing and where we're sitting. So I, I really like to put urban farming in this historical, uh, more accurate and historical and political framework because it helps us understand the impacts of urban farming and the narratives that come with it in the dominant media uh, without us even realizing it. What are some of the, the models that are happening in Detroit right now that you are excited about? An organization called Detroit Summer. Uh, Detroit Summer is an intergenerational movement here in, the, in Detroit. Detroit Summer and people from the Boggs Center like James and Gracie Boggs, but also elders in our community like uh, Gerald Hairston and other folks that uh, were part of the, the Gardening Angels who are elders from the South that moved up here with their parents when they were young during the, the Great Migration. Uh, and people that were escaping the oppressive measures that were being practiced in the South uh, after Reconstruction that made it very oppressive for African descended folks that were kidnapped from their ancestral lands. And so these are folks that brought with them extensive knowledge around food and farming and growing food that worked with young people in our community to take back ownership of our neighborhoods through community gardens. One of the things that James and Gracie Boggs are often quoted with saying is that we are the leaders that we've been waiting for. And folks like Freedom Freedom and D-Town and Oakland Avenue, I draw a lot of inspiration from because they've made a way out of no way. They've used their social capital in a way that not only just like takes us away from seeing farming and growing food in this very like capitalistic way of extracting wealth from, from the earth, but it also gives us an opportunity and a platform to see ourselves as champions of our own narratives and champions of our own stories and not wait for people to save us. So I, I draw a lot of inspiration from those farms in particular, uh, and they give, they give me a lot of hope. Yeah. This is Earth Eats. We'll be back with the rest of our interview with Shane Bernardo in just a moment. Production support comes from Elizabeth Rue, enrolled agent providing customized financial services for individuals, businesses, and disabled adults, including tax planning, bill paying, and estate services. More at personalfinancialservices.net. Bill Brown at Griffey Creek Studio, architectural design and consulting for residential, commercial, and community projects. Sustainable, energy positive, and resilient design for a rapidly changing world. Bill at griffeycreek.studio and insurance agent Dan Williamson of Bill Rush Insurance, offering comprehensive auto, business, and home coverage in affiliation with Beacon Insurance. Beyond the expected. More at 812-336-6838. I'm Kate Young. Let's return to my conversation with Shane Bernardo. I read a piece that you wrote for Why Hunger about intergenerational trauma and food. 
And I was wondering if you would be willing to talk a little bit more about that. A lot of the, the contemporary issues that we're dealing with today have been inherited. For instance, for in back home in, in the Philippines, that trauma of being displaced and not being able to practice our spiritual traditions, our earth-based traditions, our subsistence traditions, has a compounding effect over multiple generations. And that compounding effect gets passed on through the years to your progeny. I recently went back home to the Philippines to visit my family in um, Nueva Vizcaya. And what I found was that in my attempt to heal from the grief of uh, losing my, my father in 2010 to chronic disease and losing my grandmother in 2016, in my attempt to heal from that, that grief, what I found was when I went back home to reconnect with my family, I, f I also found that I was carrying the grief of my ancestors. of being displaced in the diaspora and um, forced to make a living on the land that I'm not native to. And so the, one of the ways that I use to cope with that is through food, is by eating foods that are familiar to me, that I grew up eating, that were passed down through the generations, and that give me a sense of identity um, and familiarity with my people and my ancestors who I long to have uh, a relationship with. Some of the foods that I'm growing in my backyard are culturally relevant foods that are synonymous with my people's traditions around celebrating, growing, and sharing food with other people. It's not just, it's not just a practice of consumption, but it's also a practice of nourishing my spirit and using it as a medium to connect with other people. So some of the examples of the foods that I'm growing are like garlic and onions. But the ones that I'm like most proud of are some of the nightshade, nightshade varieties. I'm growing like three or four different types of tomatoes, growing eggplants, growing uh, different types of chilies. Even though like uh, Philippine cuisine and food is really not known for it being spicy, I have a hard time tasting my food unless I'm in pain because I really like that spice, that kick. And I'm also growing um, ground cherries. And yeah, so I really like the, the nightshade family because these are foods that I, I grew up eating. I'm first generation in Detroit and my family kept a, a garden ever since I was a kid before it was even called urban gardening or urban farming. So I, I use these foods, uh, again, to maintain this connection to my people, my ancestors, and our cultural traditions. Is there a particular dish that you can think of that you like to cook that really connects you to your family's traditions and your culture? Yeah, there's one particular dish. It's, a, it's actually a really simple dish. It's kind of, kind of like a porridge, almost. It's kind of a, it's like a, it's like a rice kanji. We call it lugao. It's a very like humble meal. A lot of times it would just be like a piece of chicken on the bone and the leftover rice from the, the previous dinner or meal and some, uh, some fresh ginger and some scallions some, uh, and some fried garlic on top. 
but it's so it's so nourishing. And one of the reasons why I particularly like that meal is because my grandmother used to make it for me when I was younger, when I was sick. And just to feel that in my belly recalls this connection that I have uh, with my grandmother and her nourishing spirit and how she used to take care of us when my parents would go to work. So I grew up in a multi-generational household and food was one of the ways that my grandmother expressed her love and care for her family. And so sometimes when I'm missing her spirit, I just want to ground myself in that place of familiarity. Sometimes I turn to food as a way of, of doing that. And uh, Lugao is just one of the, the few dishes that really help build that connection. Thank you so much. Uh, thanks for the opportunity. I really appreciate it. You can find out more about Shane Bernardo on our website. We'll have links to his work and to some of the organizations he mentioned in Detroit, like the Bog Center, Feed and Freedom, and D-Town Farm. That's at eartheats.org. Every year, I fall in love with apples all over again once the cold weather hits. This year, my favorites are the small Jonathans from Old Lane Orchard. They're the perfect balance of crisp and tart, great for baking, yet sweet enough for eating out of hand. I recently visited Cardinal Spirits, our local craft distillery, where guest bartender Scott Lowe was thinking about balance for his autumnal apple-a-day cocktail. My name is Scott Lowe, and I'm the Indiana sales manager for Cardinal Spirits. But I've been a bartender for, well, I've been in the business for about 30 years, and I have been a bartender most recently in the Indianapolis area for about uh, 18 years. We're going to make a fall-inspired cocktail, and um, that's going to uh, utilize our uh, Cardinal Standard Dry Gin, along with some uh, Indiana apple cider, and some uh, locally sourced honey from um, the owner's apiary up in Fort Wayne area that I infused with cinnamon sticks and a little bit of fresh lime juice. Much of what I do focuses on seasonality, whether it be fall, winter, spring, summer, and utilizing those fruits or vegetables or herbs that kind of go along with that season. So certainly for, for fall, apples, I think apples, I love apples. And the apple cider that I'm using is actually from a uh, orchard from Northern Indiana and that's actually in my hometown of Laporte, Indiana. So I'm kind of, you know, utilizing some local ingredients that are kind of near to my, to my heart. We're going to start with two ounces of our Cardinal Standard Dry Gin, which is a juniper forward traditional dry style gin with a ton of citrus. So we add juniper berries, coriander, uh, orange zest, lemon zest in, some, in a basket. It's a, a botanical basket that we have on one of the columns in our still. It's on the very last column, and then the liquid vapor passes over the botanical and actually infuses into make it a gin. So it's a very clean, dry gin. And we're going to use two ounces of that. And I'm going to put this in a shaker tin. And then next, I will add one ounce 
of Indiana apple cider. Garwood's Orchards, Laporte, Indiana. I will then add three quarters of an ounce of lime juice. And then I will add the cinnamon infused cardinal honey from our owner's farm up in Fort Wayne, Indiana. And then I will take that and add some ice to the tin. At first I thought you said a shaker tin, but then I realized you were saying tin. Shaker tin, yes. Yes, shaker tin, that's uh, shaker tin is uh, one of the most important parts of a bartender's uh, arsenal as far as equipment is concerned or tools. So yes, this, this basically, for any shaken cocktail used with citrus, allows the proper dilution factor and keeps the drink nice and cold. And it's a stainless steel, so it's easy to clean and it doesn't take on. If you're making several different type cocktails with, with different ingredients, it doesn't hold on to those ingredients once they've been poured out. Cap that, and I'll give it a shake for about 20 seconds. We want a dilution of about 20%, so that kind of infuses the ice and makes it a nice cold drink, and it doesn't make it too boozy. And you know it's ready when the sides of the shaker tin are ice cold to the touch. And so I'll take my Hawthorne strainer, and I'll put it over the top of the shaker tin, and then I'll take my double strainer, which is a fine mesh sieve, that was gonna extract all of the shards of ice so it doesn't continue to dilute. And then I'll be adding some ice to the glass. So you're removing the ice and then you're adding the ice. Correct, yes. So you're removing the ice just because those, the, the, the fine ice, you can see this in your shaker tin when you're looking at it, um, you see these fine, fine little crystals of ice. If those remain in the drink, they dissipate very quickly, so it's just gonna water down your drink. That larger cubes are gonna take longer to, to dilute, so. And you wanna keep the drink cold. And then I'm just gonna garnish it with a nice thin slice of an Indiana apple. I'm just gonna set that right on top here. There you are. Oh, that's gorgeous. That is the apple a day cocktail. That's great, it's so simple. My favorite cocktails are the, are the simplest to make. As long as you're using really good quality ingredients and fresh juices, then you really don't need a whole lot of ingredients total. I mean, just keep it simple, make it nice and, and easy for everybody to kind of understand and be very approachable. Uh, do you mind if I taste it? Sure. Yeah, that is really simple. It's clean. It's crisp like, like an apple, mm -hmm. like nice, yeah. crisp. And, that's, and it also allows the spirit to still have, to be present. You don't want to, there's a reason why you're using a really good gin. You want to be able to taste that gin and the components of that gin as well. Yeah, I like the honey. The honey in there is nice. It goes really good with the apple. The honey and the cinnamon are very subtle. Like they're just adding a warmth, but it's not like you're going cinnamon. You right. know, it, it's just a subtle it's warmth. Over. It's not taking over the cocktail. Yeah, and then that's again, that's the balance part of the factor of the, of the cocktail. Oh, that's wonderful. Thank you. Find the recipe for Scott Lowe's Apple a Day cocktail featuring Cardinal Spirits Gin at eartheats.org. The Earth Eats team includes Aobon Binder, Chad Bouchard, Alex Chambers, Mark Chilla, Taylor Killo, Josephine McRobbie, Daniel Orr, the IU Food Institute, Harvest Public Media, and me, Renee Reed. Our theme music is composed by Aaron Toby and performed by Aaron and Matt Toby. Earth Eats is produced and edited by Kate Young 
and our executive producer is John Bailey. Special thanks this week to Shane Bernardo, Scott Lowe, and everyone at Cardinal Spirits. Production support comes from insurance agent Dan Williamson of Bill Rush Insurance, offering comprehensive auto, business, and home coverage in affiliation with Beacon Insurance. Beyond the expected. More at 812-336-6838. Elizabeth Rue, enrolled agent with Personal Financial Services, assisting businesses and individuals with tax preparation and planning for over 15 years. More at personalfinancialservices.net. And Bill Brown at Griffey Creek Studio, architectural design and consulting for residential, commercial, and community projects. Sustainable, energy positive, and resilient design for a rapidly changing world. Bill at GriffeyCreek.studio.